The people closest to you in ministry will hurt you the most. I was in a meeting with an older pastor who uh, had chosen to disciple some younger guys and prepare the next generation for what it would mean to be in pastoral ministry. And he was trying to um, just kind of lower our expectations. It's always a good idea when you're headed in to something is to really understand what the expectations are. And you're headed into pastoral ministry and you think things are going to be great. This is what you're going to do with your life. And you're going to be in the church and everyone's going to love you and things are going to be wonderful. He said, I just want to warn you, the hardest thing in ministry is those who are closest to you will hurt you the most. And I'll never forget it. It stunned me in that moment because I think we all, to some degree, naively, we begin to think that the pain and hurt and betrayal will naturally come from our enemies. You look out at the church and you begin to think as a pastor, your most painful days will, will come from those who just outright oppose you. They have a different agenda. You know, the contrarians in the church, they, they don't agree. They don't like the music. They don't, they don't like, you know, what you're doing with the money. They don't like the plans for missions and they're always speaking up and you, you kind of put them in a category and you, you expect, okay, those are, that's where all the frustration is going to come from. But over time, you realize that's not at all. Those are just who they are, and they're just going to be over there. The most painful and hurtful days come from those who you're in the trenches with, those who you build deep relationships with and friendships with. And as this pastor was was explaining this, he said, because you have to understand the essence of betrayal. Betrayal never comes from your enemies. It never comes from your enemies. Betrayal, the essence of betrayal is to be betrayed by someone you love and you think loves you. That is the essence of what it means to be hurt, to be disappointed, to be embarrassed from a friend who lies, a spouse who has another life, another agenda than what you have. A parent who just isn't who you thought they were. That, that's where the pain of betrayal comes from. And it's always unexpected. But it never comes from those you would categorize as your enemies. And when we begin to look at the last days of Jesus' life, we begin to see this scandal in the gospel. Jesus is betrayed by one of his disciples. But the scandal with Jesus is he knows it's coming. And he expects it's coming. And he makes the traitor his friend to begin with. Knowing what is going to happen. And that is the scandal of the gospel that we begin to see in the passage that we're looking at today in verse 1. Notice verse 1, Mark chapter 14. It was now two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, this remember, this is why Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples. And this will be the last Passover that he celebrates. And they have traveled to Jerusalem. 
with, with so many other Jews, the Jerusalem, the population of the city would, would triple during Passover. People believe there were even millions of people at Passover on certain occasions. And here we're, we're moving toward the end of the week. Passover would have been held toward the end of the week in the Feast of Unleavened Bread that would carry on beyond Passover as the Jews celebrated their exodus from Egypt. This was their 4th of July, except it was all week long. And they're moving toward the end of the week. This is probably Wednesday. But remember what Jesus has done all week. Jesus has spent this week condemning the temple of God, Herod's temple, this glorious structure in the middle of the city that everybody saw, 60-foot walls in certain places, gold-plated, magnificent structure that Herod had partnered with certain Jews to construct for them. And Jesus has stood around and he has condemned it. He says, look at that temple. It is a mountain between God and men, and it needs to be raised to the ground. It needs to be destroyed. He's even predicted its destruction. He has humiliated the teachers around the temple. He's called them out as false teachers. He's turned over tables inside the temple. He says it's all a sham. And the chief priests and scribes, as we see in our text, who are from the Sanhedrin, 71 leaders who make up a council, a supreme court, they are ready to kill him. They can't stand him. They want him to be destroyed. But while Jesus is preaching publicly, they're scared. They're scared to present their case publicly. And so they are acting behind the scenes, notice the text says, to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Why is that, verse 2? For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. There are many Jews around at that time who wanted a revolt against the Roman Empire. And many believe Jesus is their guy. He, he, he's got this courage about him. They are flocking to him, screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, save us from the Romans. And the chief priests believe if we move in on him now, we will cause a revolt. We will cause riots in the city. And so we cannot do this publicly. And as we've said before, this means Jesus holds all the cards. We see his sovereign control in that reality. These men cannot carry out their plans. They can't do what they want to do unless Jesus allows it. And we know how the week ends. From Hosanna to crucify him. How did that happen? It only happens because Jesus allows it. And how does Jesus behind the scenes accomplish this? Notice verse 2. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now, Mark moves us back to the beginning of the week. John tells us that this episode happened on the first day of Passover, six days before. And so what is Mark doing? 
The religious leaders can't get to him. How are they going to get to him? Well, let me tell you a story about what happened earlier in the week in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Something happened there at a party that will lead to Jesus's betrayal. Notice Simon the leper. Now, many believe this could have been Lazarus' dad, Martha and Mary Magdalene's dad, and Jesus has gathered in their home for a party. Lazarus, a former leper, and then Mary Magdalene, who we know demons were exercised from her, who had developed a friendship with Jesus along with her sister Martha. And so Jesus is headed to Passover. He stops at their house. Many believe he commuted back and forth from their house. But what are are these friends of Jesus who have experienced his power, who've experienced his authority and experienced his friendship do when Jesus is in town? Well, they have a party. Jesus is here. They begin to invite their friends over And as they are eating, notice the text says, he was reclining. This is the way that you ate meals. It was very strategic. It was very slow. You would lay down, basically, to eat the meals. And so there's a lot of commotion going on, and Jesus is there with his disciples, and Lazarus is there. Lazarus is probably holding court. Hey, man, could you tell us what it was like to have been dead Before Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth from the grave. What was that like? And here they're recounting God's grace in their life, enjoying the fellowship with one another. There's commotion all around. And then Mark says, verse 3, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, this is meant to sort of break up the party. Mark doesn't even tell us who this is. We assume it's Mary Magdalene. And she comes in with an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, we're to believe that that this flask was worth $25,000. It would have been pure nard that had been imported from the Himalayas. And here she comes in. This would have been a year's wage in this jar of ointment, this perfume that she walks in. And everyone's enjoying one another's fellowship. There's eating going on, and she walks in. Now, that would have been scandalous to begin with because the men would have been around eating, and she obviously walks in and interrupts the mill. And at that moment, people would have been uneasy, and they would have been frustrated. And her family would have said, why in the world is she holding our flask of ointment? Because this would have been their inheritance. This would have been like an heirloom to them. This would have been the family's life savings. As she saw the meal going on, she saw Jesus there. She's overwhelmed with his power and his friendship. She says, I know what I want to do. And she goes away and gets the most valuable possession that she has. And she walks into the room with it. And she gets a basin. And people are really, really uncomfortable at this point. What is she doing? What is she going to do? And the text says, she broke the flask. Meaning it can never be used again. She has destroyed 
her family's life savings. And then she begins to pour it on the head of Jesus. Now, the only way to compare this would be like if your grandmother, if she had inherited a bottle of champagne from the Titanic, and you're having a party, and you said, you know what we're going to do? We're, just pretend we're not Baptists for a moment. We're going to go get grandma's champagne and we're going to break it out and we're going to celebrate. And you said, oh, no, we're not. Well, she didn't ask for permission. She brings in the perfume. And at that point, it's over. There's no turning back. And so verse 4 there were some who said to themselves indignantly. Now, this, they are infuriated. The word means to flare your nostrils. Not just frustrated, not just a little perturbed. They are infuriated with her. What are you doing? That is a year's wage that you just busted open and you're pouring on his head. You're wasting it. What are you doing? Why was the ointment, the text says, waste it like that? Why did you waste it like that? Verse 5, for the ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, probably $25,000 a year's wage. And notice what they said. And given to the poor. Now, right then, we begin to understand who is saying that. The accountant. Why did you do that? Think of all the ministry that we could have done if we would have sold it. Think of all the mission work we could have done in the community. And it says they scolded her. They are berating her. They are angry with her. They are furious with her. In verse 6, Jesus said, leave her alone. Stop it. Back off. Why trouble her? Why, why cause her such anxiety and pain? Notice she has done a beautiful thing to me. What you see before your eyes is awe-inspiring. What you see her doing right now is to invoke awe and worship. You are seeing something before you that is beautiful, that should be taking your breath away. It is a wonderful thing. And then he says, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them. Now, he's not saying, now's my time. What he's saying there is, you've always had the poor around. <laughs> Get to serving them. This isn't stopping you from serving the poor but you will not always have me. And notice he explains what she has done. She has done what only she could do. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She has taken her most valuable possession, which is hers. This is hers. And in this moment, which is her, this is her moment. Only she could do this at this time in history. Only she could prepare the Son of Man for burial in the way that she has. This is her moment. Back off. This is a beautiful thing that you see here. She, in this moment, 
took what she had to worship me. Now, there is an awkward reality that is being declared here. Imagine one of your friends inviting you over for dinner, and you walk in, and they have a casket in the living room, and they have flowers on it, and they say, hop in, buddy. Here's your, here's your coffin. We've already purchased it for you, and we just want to see what it looks like before time. That's what's going on here. She has anointed his body for burial. That's awkward, and that's weird, but she is making a statement here, and it's the same way, statement we make when we prepare bodies for burial. We do all kinds of weird and crazy things with them. We pump them full of fluid. We put suits on them. We put dresses on them. Why? Why do we do that? Because we believe that body is going to be raised from the dead. We believe that body is going to get up out of the ground. That is why she is taking such care with Jesus, anointing his head She is declaring, this is the king who will get up out of the ground. This is the one who will be back from the dead, unscathed by death. I am preparing him for burial. She sees what is in front of them, and she worships him in that moment in only a way that she could worship only this one who will defeat death. Notice Jesus says, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in my memory. Now notice all of the little people in the background at this point chirping. Why is she doing that? Why is she doing that? Why is she doing that? He says, shut up. The rest of the world is going to hear about her from now on. You you stand over there and murmur in stealth. I'm going to make sure when the gospel is taken to the world that people know about her. She's going to become famous for what she's doing. And we read about her today. We're engaged in in studying her life in this act of worship in this moment. And why? And here's the issue for her. The question is, is Jesus worthy or not? Is he worthy of such worship or not? Because we're standing back going, no, 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 I wouldn't do that. I would invest it. I would call Edward Jones, and we would invest that. But the question she asked you today, is he he worth it or not? As you condemn me, is Jesus worthy or not? She pours this out to say Jesus is her only true treasure. She pours out her most valuable treasure to say, this is not my only treasure. He is my only treasure. And she anoints him as her treasure, as her king. And that is the question for you today in your worship. That's what worship means, by the way, to declare worth. And she declares his worth here. He he is worth more than anything I have. And I wonder if that's what you're after in worship. See, every time we worship, we're presented scales. And you have Jesus on one side, and he outweighs everything. 
And we're asking the question, what can I place in the scales that will show his worth? What can I give that shows the world he is worthy? What can I place over here to say he is my only true treasure? That is the question that you're asking in worship. What can I do? What can I say? How can I sing? What can I give? How can I sacrifice in a way that says he is most worthy? And ultimately, it's, his, it's, it's my life that I have to give over to say he is most worthy. What do I have that declares his worth? Well, it's everything. I don't have enough in my life. So I have to give my life over. And that's why some of you are thinking here, okay, if I'm going to mimic her act of worship, then I've got to deplete my life savings. Then I've got to give everything. I've I've got to sell it all and be left with nothing. That's not the issue. She had already decided to declare the worth of Christ. She was going to give her life over to him. And so money, ointment, what is that? And that is the question today. Is Jesus worthy of your life? And if he is worthy of your life, it it doesn't matter what you're called upon to give. You see, this was a moment. This was a moment in her life. And she said, what can I give in this moment? And you're going to be presented with moment after moment after moment. And that question is going to be asked of you, what can I give in this moment? And if you've already given him your life... Oh, I'll give it all if I have to in that moment. That's the question for you today. Your money, your time, your energy. What do you give in this moment? Your reputation. Is your reputation your treasure? Or are you willing to give it over to say Jesus is worthy? And then the text just abruptly butts in. Then Judas Iscariot. Do you see? Lavish act of worship. Oh, don't forget Judas is there. Oh, who's Judas? Judas Iscariot? We all know who he is. Because not only have we heard about this woman, we have heard his name our whole life. Hopefully no one's naming their kid Judas. Why would you do that? The traitor? Oh, he's the one who stabbed Jesus in the back. But notice who he is, one of the 12. Immediately we fast forward back to around Wednesday or Thursday... And Jesus is telling us where the betrayal came from. It came from Judas and what pushed him over the edge, this extravagant act of worship. Now we know who was in the background murmuring. Now we know who was off to the side saying, why is she doing that? Why is she doing that? Because immediately he goes to the Sanhedrin, notice the text says, to betray him. This is how the plan that the men earlier in the text can't carry out will take place. Betrayal, because Judas is mad at the woman, Mary, who worships Jesus in this way. This pushed him over the edge. Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad. We got one. We got the treasurer. And he's furious because someone has wasted 300 denarius worth of ointment on Jesus. And they promised him money. Promised to give him money. Now we know this is 30 pieces of silver, which would eventually be the the equivalent of maybe $600. So she wasted $25,000 on Jesus 
he gets $600 for betraying Jesus. Put those on the scales. What's worth more? But notice he says, he sought an opportunity to betray him. We got to do this in stealth when no one's around. Judas is our end. He's going to tell us where he is. He's going to tell us how we can carry this out. He's our man. Now, John tells us that Judas got angry not because he cared about the poor. Remember that super spiritual excuse? We could have served the poor. John explains, no, he didn't care about the poor. He used to steal money out of the treasury. He, he used to take from the funds that were given. And so if she would have sold that and given it to the ministry, he could have had more money. He loved money, and we see he loved money here more than Jesus. And he trades Jesus for $600. Think about that. He believed 30 pieces of silver could satisfy him more than Jesus. That's the choice he made. And the choice is, is Jesus worthy or is sin worth it? Is sin worth it? We say Jesus is worthy of everything or sin is worth it. Sin is worth giving myself over to. That's the choice we make when we sin. The reality is we trade what is invaluable, Jesus, for what is not even of significant value, what depletes value from life, which is sin. Jesus is invaluable. Sin brings about death and despair and hell. And so we trade what is invaluable for that which takes value from our life and our eternity. That is the choice we make when we sin. And one of the things we're seeing working out here is if I believe Jesus is worthy and valuable, then I I will be given over to giving at all costs. And I won't care about the cost of my giving. But if I believe sin is worth it and more worthy than Jesus, I will be enslaved to taking. And it will lead me to places I don't even want to think about. When I make the decision, no, sin is worth it. It's worth it all. I will, be, I will be committed to getting and taking and using others to get what I want. But if Jesus is worthy, I'm going to sacrifice. He, I, have it all, I have everything I need in him, so I'm free to give instead of being enslaved to take. When sin is worth it, we will take the payout from a cheaper master versus eternity from a promised king. That's the choice you make. When you say, the adrenaline rush that I can get by staring at the thing on the screen in the moment, you are taking a payout from a lesser master. And that moment's not worth it. It's not. You have to convince yourself of that. When, when, when you start to believe The security of the lie is worth it and it protects yourself and it makes you look good when you start to believe that sin, that lie is worth it. You have to remind yourself, no, it's not. This is a cheaper master and the payout is nothing. It's nothing. I'm settling for the payout now versus eternity. When you start to believe that the power 
to hurt that person is worth it. You've got to remind yourself this is a lesser master. This isn't going to be worth it. The payout will not last. You've got to convince yourself this is momentary pleasure that will be over in a moment versus the invaluable king who has given me everything and offered me a glorious kingdom. You've got to convince yourself sin isn't worth it. Jesus is worthy to walk away from the sin. Judas couldn't convince himself of this. And so from, we see the hearts of the, the woman, the heart of Judas. And so where is this leading? And we're going to run through this really quick. Verse 12. Mark has, he, he's, he's taken us deep into the hearts of the woman and Judas. And then he says, okay, where does it lead? Verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, we're back at the Passover, we're moving closer to the crucifixion, his disciples said, where would you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Where are we going to do this? Where are we going to celebrate the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said, go into the city and a man carrying a jar will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master's house, the teacher says, where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us what is the point here Jesus has planned Passover he knows what's going on in the heart of Mary he knows what's going on in the heart of Judas and he moves forward with his plan anyway Jesus has a plan verse 16 and the disciples set out and went to the city and they found it just as he had told them Jesus had prepared it all for them and so they get ready for Passover verse 17 and when the evening when it was evening Evening, he came with the 12 and they were reclining at table and eating. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Hold on. Jesus knew what was happening. He planned it. And now he tells them, I know what's about to happen. That's the point of the text. Mark has shown us the hearts. Now he's showing us the plan. Now this happens after Jesus washes their feet as a slave And he sits down and he says, one of you will betray me. Jesus, who is it? Is it one of the servants? Is it the master of the house? Is it the guy who prepared the room? Is it someone out on the street? No, notice one who is eating with me. One who is enjoying the fellowship. One who I just washed his feet. And notice their response. They began to be sorrowful. And they all said to him, one after another, this is strategic, Mark slows down. One after another, they all said, is it I? Think about those words. We know the story. We know who it is. Imagine being in the moment And there is a glimpse into the fact that they all knew their heart. It could be me. They confessed their sin in that moment. They confessed the wickedness of their own heart. It could be me. They're not saying, we know it's Judas. Remember back in Bethany when he was scolding Mary? It's him, it's him, we know it's him. 
He's a jerk. He's a scoundrel. He loves money. No, they say, is it me, Jesus? Tell me it's not me, Jesus. Can you imagine the moment? Tell me it's not me, Jesus. And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. And we will hear more about that later. But Jesus goes back to the plan. For the Son of Man goes as it is written. This is God's plan that I be betrayed. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God has a plan. He is sovereign over everything. But man is still responsible. The plan is that that Jesus would be betrayed. But there is one who will be held responsible for it. Woe to that man. Sorrow and dread upon, notice the text says, the man, the man, that man. And we know who that man is. And he says it would be better for him that he had never been born. This is where he falls in human history. It would be better that Judas never existed. That we wouldn't even know his name. This isn't a play. This isn't a movie. Where we leave the play, we leave the movie, and we say, wow, he played a great villain. No. This is real life. And it would be better for him to never exist if he's going to play that part in the story. But the issue is the plan. Earlier in the text, the men couldn't figure out their plan. Well, the reality is Jesus knows the plan, and it includes betrayal. Verses 1 and 2, the men, how are we going to do this? Jesus says, I know how you'll do it. One of my own will betray me, and I will plan the whole evening when it happens. I will wash his feet. Your arrest and your crucifixion can't stop the plan because the plan includes arrest and crucifixion, and it's my plan. That's what Jesus is saying to us here. And so the question is, where do you fit in the plan? Are you one who says Jesus is worthy, or are you one here today who's saying no sin is worth it? Sin is worth it. Would you be one here today who would say, is it me? Is it me? I know my heart. God, save me from this sin. Help me to declare that Jesus is worth it. Where do you fall in the plan? Now, one of the reasons Mark does this, he outlines this whole section in this way, is to paint a beautiful story of the gospel. Notice, at the center of the story of betrayal, Get this, Mark says, I'm going to tell you how Jesus was betrayed. And right in the middle of it, he includes an act of worship. Isn't that beautiful? Right in the middle of the story of betrayal, this extravagant act of worship. And it's a beautiful picture of the gospel, right? Because the reality is, here today, we are all Judas to some extent. God has given you life, He's given you breath for his glory, to declare the supremacy of Christ in all things. And what have you done? You have stolen that life and you said, I will live my 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years for myself. I will steal it from you, God, and I will do whatever I want. And you stabbed him in the back. That is who you are as a sinner. You're a Judas. But there's hope for traitors Right before the traitor's eyes was hope of the king being anointed. And one of the beautiful pictures here in this anointing of Jesus, 
While this is going on, people are out in the streets and they are buying Passover lambs. And you know what they do on Monday to Passover lambs? They anoint their feet. They anoint their feet. And in the Gospel of John, that's what he points out in the story. He said, I want to tell you a story that happened at the beginning of the week. She broke the flask and anointed his feet, just like the Passover lambs that are being purchased out in the street. What do Matthew and Mark do? They insert the story at the end of the week. Because after the lambs were examined all week long, their heads were anointed. And that is the story that Matthew and Mark tell us. That's the way they tell the story from their perspective. And it's a literary device to say that the anointed lamb of God was was laying there with funeral perfume all over his body in the presence of his friends in this beautiful act of worship to say to us and to say everyone there, this is your Passover lamb, Jesus the Christ. And it is a beautiful, beautiful display of the gospel for traitors, for those who would choose their own way and choose to stab Jesus in the back. There's a picture of the gospel that's there and it was there for Judas. Judas could have repented of his sin and believed in the Passover lamb. It was there for him in that moment and it is there for you today. Because it wasn't the alabaster flask that saved Mary's soul. It was the lamb that was broken and his blood was poured out for her and she is covered by faith in his blood and the same thing can be for you today if you would believe in the Passover lamb anointed for you whose name is Jesus. And you can worship today. You you worship today. You say, I don't know about my checking account. I don't know what I got to give today. I, I don't have much Well, God says, just give me Jesus. Just give me my Passover lamb. Believe in him, the one who has poured out and shed his blood for you. You see, the essence of betrayal is that it never comes from an enemy. It's always unexpected from a friend. And is that not the essence of the gospel? That Jesus planned and expected betrayal by an enemy? An enemy he made his friend? Is that not the gospel? So we who are enemies might unexpectedly become his friends. That's the gospel that he would plan to make you an enemy his friend.